the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we'll talk with Meredith McDaniel. She's the author of In Want and Plenty. Waking Up to God's Provision in a Land of Longing. She'll join us later this hour. We'll also try to bring you uh, up to date on what's happening in Washington with the uh, trial of the uh, the impeachment trial of the president. Uh, the Democrats uh, offered their, uh, I should say, the, uh, uh, the Democrat, oh, I can't think of the word, but they made their argument. They've begun making their opening statements and arguments uh, today. We'll get into that a bit later in the program. Well, today marks the... 47th anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade decision. Tony Perkins, in writing on the subject, pointed out that back on the 22nd of January 1973, you'd be surprised to know that the Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade wasn't the biggest headline. President Lyndon Johnson had died, and that forced the story about America's darkest verdict into smaller font below tributes to the Great Society. Looking back, the parallel was probably fitting a nation in mourning. Any which way it turned. Well, 47 years later, there's no telling how many other presidents the country has buried, how many future doctors, inventors or artists who lost because of that day, how much music was never heard, how many cures we might have found, how many teachers might have inspired children to rise above children who are not here. Uh, They are the missing, the 61 million, the children who became privacy rights and choices and women's health. Half a century ago, seven men in black robes stole their dignity. But today, a nation of pro-lifers led by uh, fearless leaders, they're continuing to fight to take it back. 61 million abortions. And by the way, that uh, figure is from 2017, so the numbers could be dramatically higher. Well, by taking the issue of abortion away from the American people on that day and by imposing one policy for 50 states, The U.S. Supreme Court had roiled national politics and damaged its own standing all in one ruling in Roe versus Wade. Justice Blackmun's opinion in Roe made up a right to abortion in American history and admitted that because a woman carries an embryo and later a fetus, that the situation, therefore, is inherently different from any previous precedent decided by the court. There is nothing in the text of the Constitution mentioning abortion or privacy. And, of course, the right to abortion was based on the right to privacy, neither of which are in the Constitution. Much has changed since Roe was issued in 1973, January the 22nd. Ultrasound technology came on the scene a few years after Roe and dramatically changed public understanding of human development. Notably, the abortion rate has declined to its lowest level since 1972. In the past year, the court has shown that it will move slowly on the abortion issue, but there are more than 30 abortion test cases potentially heading to the Supreme Court, and the court will have numerous opportunities in coming years to address the issue again. The court has discretion as to whether it hears any abortion case, any case for that matter. And while the court may hear some abortion cases and affirm pro-life laws in the next few years, it seems likely that the court will not directly confront Roe for several years. The timing will likely be influenced 
influenced by electoral developments, future changes in the court's personnel. But sooner or later, the court will have to reexamine Roe. Overturning Roe v. Wade would return the abortion issue to the states, where public policy would be more closely aligned with public opinion. The pro-life movement has continued to grow and has developed considerable legal and political momentum in the states, even under Roe. And although other states have enacted laws which expand abortion on demand throughout the pregnancy, other states have uh, tried to restrict it as much as is possible under Roe versus Wade. Well, regardless of what happens with Roe, state legislatures will continue to uh, play a critical role in protecting pregnant women and their unborn children. The pro-life movement needs to be wholeheartedly on the side of women by supporting direct services to women and by helping women understand the long-term medical risks of abortion. This is necessary to help women choose alternatives and necessary to rebut the Supreme Court's rationale for the abortion right, that women rely on abortion for equal opportunity in America. It's rather interesting that um, among the uh, primary signatories, they acknowledge that it was poor uh, uh, decision making on their part. Quickly, a diary of an unborn child on day one fertilization. All human chromosomes are present and a unique life has begun. By day six, the embryo begins to implanting uh, in the uterus. By day 22, the heart begins to beat with the child's own blood, often with a different type than the mother's. By week five, the eyes, legs, and hands begin to develop. Week six, there are brain waves. They're detectable. The mouth and lips are present and fingers are forming. By week seven, eyelids and toes form. The baby now has a distinct nose and is kicking and swimming. By week eight, every organ is in, in its place. Bones, fingerprints begin to form. Weeks nine and ten, teeth begin to form. Fingernails develop. Baby can turn its head and frown. By week 11, baby can grasp objects placed in hand. And by week 17, the baby can have a dream or rim sleep. Well, as I mentioned, there have been over 61 million abortions in the U.S. since 1973. There were over 800,000 abortions in 2017, and that's nearly 2,400 per day, 98 abortions per hour, one every 34 seconds. Of all pregnancies that result in either live birth or abortion, that's back in 2017, 18.4% resulted in abortion. We have a long way to go. I think it's important to mention that abortion is not the unforgivable sin, that God's grace and mercy and provision for all our sins covers even that one. So one doesn't need to bask in a life of guilt, believing that God cannot reconcile that decision under the grace that he provides by his own sacrifice. So take comfort in that if you, and I'm guessing there are many listeners who have had abortions or who were instrumental in others having abortions, that there is hope in Christ, even for that. Praise God. When we come back, we'll take a look at the headlines. A marathon first day in the president's uh, Senate impeachment trial erupted into a shouting match well after midnight yesterday morning. We'll tell you more about that and other news developing. So stay with us. Also coming up in the latter part of this hour, we'll talk with Meredith McDaniel, author of In Want and Plenty, Waking Up to God's Provision in a Land of Longing. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Meredith McDaniel, author of It Want and Plenty, Waking Up to God's Provision in a Land of Longing. 
Uh, Meredith is a licensed professional counselor in private practice. She's a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She enjoys entering into quieter places of people's lives in a safe setting to offer hope and to help others taste the land of milk and honey. She and her husband uh, and their three children live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Her book, Inward in want, rather, and plenty, waking up to God's provision in a land of longing. Well, a marathon first day in President Trump's Senate impeachment trial erupted into a shouting match well after midnight, uh, early Wednesday morning, Eastern time, as the president's legal team unloaded on Democratic impeachment manager Representative Jerry Nadler in an exchange that prompted a bleary-eyed Chief Justice John Roberts, who probably would like to have been at home to sternly admonish both sides for misconduct in the chamber. The spat began when Nadler spoke in support of the Eighth Amendment of the day proposed by uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's ground rules for the impeachment trial. Schumer's eight proposed amendments issued as the clock struck midnight was to issue a subpoena for former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who was reportedly described Trump's conduct as akin to a drug deal. Each of his previous attempted um, alter alterations to McConnell's rules had been rejected by a United Republican contingent by a vote of 53 to 47. That does not mean John Bolton cannot be called in future, but it will not be secured prior to hearing testimony. Nadler said it would be a treacherous vote and a cover-up for Republicans to reject the Bolton subpoena, claiming that only guilty people try to hide evidence. That prompted Trump's legal team to rise in response with an animated White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, saying to uh, Nadler, saying that Nadler should be embarrassed for the way he has addressed the Senate. This is the United States Senate. You're not in charge here. It's about time we bring this power trip in for a landing, Cipollone said. Well, Trump attorney Jay Sekulow hammered Nadler for suggesting that executive privilege, a longstanding constitutional principle protecting executive branch deliberations from disclosure, wasn't legitimate. Well, the outbursts prompted Roberts, who as chief justice of the U.S. is constitutionally required to serve as the presiding judge in the impeachment trial to admonish both sides of the debate. Roberts called the Senate the world's greatest deliberative body and added that those addressing the Senate should remember where they are. Roberts was uh, in for a short night of sleep. He presided over the oral arguments at the Supreme Court at 10 a.m. this morning. Ultimately, the Senate adopted McConnell's framework for the trial in another 53-47 vote, strictly along party lines. In total, approximately 12 and a half hours of debate marked the first day of Trump's Senate impeachment trial which resumed uh, today at 1 Eastern time with the impeachment managers uh, giving their opening argument. That's the word I was trying to think of earlier, impeachment managers. Well, Hillary Clinton on Tuesday appeared to walk back her strong opposition to Senator Bernie Sanders after she suggested in an interview that she would not support her former 2016 rival if he were to win the Democratic nomination in 2020. During an extensive interview with The Hollywood Reporter about Hillary, the uh, new Hulu documentary series on her life, Clinton made headlines by refusing to say whether she would endorse Sanders. She blasted the self-declared Democratic Socialist senator as accusations of sexism that have plagued his campaign, especially in the wake of Senator Elizabeth Warren's alleged uh, alleging rather Sanders told her a woman could not win the presidential election during a private conversation in 2018. On Tuesday evening, Clinton followed those remarks with that 
what seemed to be some clarification about aiding the Democratic Party ahead of the presidential election. And opening statements and the first witness testimony uh, took place today in Harvey Weinstein's New York City rape trial, where the possibility of life in prison looms for the once celebrated Pulp Fiction producer, now vilified as a predator by scores of women and the spark of the Me Too movement. Weinstein's accusers included some of well-known, uh, some very well-known actresses who planned to testify or attend the trial and others who were looking to the New York case for a form of justice because their allegations haven't resulted in criminal charges. On this day in history, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court in its Roe v. Wade decision legalizes abortion using a trimester approach. On this day in 19... 19- uh, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson, in an address to Congress, pleads for an end to the war in Europe, calling for peace without victory. By April, however, the United States also would be at war. 1973, former President Lyndon Baines Johnson dies at his Texas ranch at age 64. 1997, the Senate confirms Madeleine Albright as the nation's first female Secretary of State. On this day in history, 1998, Theodore Kaczynski. He pleads guilty in Sacramento, California, to being the Unabomber, responsible for three deaths and 29 injuries in return for a sentence of life in prison without parole. 2008, Jose Padilla, once accused of plotting with al-Qaeda to blow up a radioactive dirty bomb, is sentenced by a U.S. federal judge in Miami to 17 years and four months on other terrorism conspiracy charges. The sentence would later be increased to 21 years. 2009, President Barack Obama signs an executive order to close the Guantanamo Bay prison camp within a year. The facility would remain in operation as lawmakers would block efforts to transfer terror suspects to the United States. President Donald Trump later would issue an order to keep the jail open and allow the Pentagon to bring new prisoners there. And finally, on this day in 2018, President Trump signed a bill reopening the government after a 69-hour shutdown. In some other coverage of the impeachment hearing, Fox News, uh, Democrats who rushed the process in the House are happy to cause delays in the Senate. Lindsey Graham writes, uh, quote, uh, quite frankly, having Adam Schiff lecture the Senate about fairness and due process is like listening to an arsonist talk about fire prevention. From Mark Hemingway, Schiff has been regularly dishonest for years now, and yet he consistently gets a free pass from all the same people who claim to be appalled by Trump's dishonesty. Rich Lowry says Adam Schiff must be the first prosecutor to show up at a trial and say, gosh, there are a bunch of things I don't know about this case, but would be interested in finding out. Mm. Jim Garrity writes, beyond the judgment of history, Democrats probably want the impeachment process to make Trump's reelection less likely. I think it's safe to say that so far they have not achieved, uh, achieved rather that goal, as most polling indicates that Democrats will have to work to beat Trump and the impeachment is likely to be a major factor in voters' minds in November. National Review. From the Wall Street Journal, Democrats who rushed to impeach in the House are suddenly demanding witnesses and crying cover up. And uh, also later in the Wall Street Journal, maybe Democrats hope witnesses will turn up something more damaging on Mr. Trump. But our guess is that the real game is political and geared to taking back the Senate. Democrats figure Republicans will vote down witnesses and they can run uh, from here to November claiming the trial was rigged and hid the truth. Finally, in the Washington Examiner, Byron York examines the false claim that Clinton happily turned over 90,000 pages of documents during his impeachment. Well, the uh, uh, Democrats are making their case today and tomorrow. They have 24 hours to do so. Then the attention will shift to the president's defense, and we'll find out what they have to say about that 
uh, version of the impeachment process. Well, a marathon 12-hour first day in the Senate impeachment trial against the president erupted into shouting match well after midnight. Nadler began the historic spat by speaking in support of the Eighth Amendment, McConnell's rules, which were eventually adopted on party line uh, on a party line vote at 1.40 a.m. on Wednesday and largely mirror those from Bill Clinton's impeachment trial in 1999, permit new witnesses and documents to be considered only later on in the proceedings after opening arguments are made. But Nadler, who was uh, overheard apparently planning to impeach Trump back in 2018, said it would be a treacherous vote and a cover up for Republicans. Well, Nadler said it would be embarrassing. The president is on trial in the Senate, but the Senate is on trial in the eyes of the American people, where the back and forth continued throughout the day today. Again, the Democrat, um, the Democrats have 12 hours to make their case to explain the Democrats impeachment uh, articles. And then the president's uh, defense team will have the opportunity to respond. They, too, will have 24 hours. I believe the senators will then have 12 hours for questions, which they will not pose directly to either of the defenders or the prosecutors, but through the chief justice who will read those questions, uh, will gain a response. So this is going to be very different from what we saw in the House. There's not going to be the grandstanding that we saw Uh, In the questioning there, this is a more deliberative body and the chief justice is the one who manages um, how those questions are posed and to whom. So that will be interesting to watch. Meanwhile, Andrew McCarthy says both sides in the Trump impeachment trial are undermining their own cases. Uh, He uh, says of their lofty rhetoric, uh, former federal prosecutor Andy McCarthy uh, says that um, uh, he's a U.S. attorney, a former U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorney for Manhattan, said that the political and legal declarations coming from both Republican Adam Schiff and White House counsel Pat Cipollone are not helping their prospective sides, assuming anyone's actually watching. In Schiff's case, McCarthy said the House Intelligence Committee chairman has continued to argue that the White House must provide more evidence and witnesses, which uh, he was referred to as key, vital or crucial. At the same time, McCarthy noted the impeachment managers argue that the evidence against Trump is overwhelming. McCarthy wondered aloud how it's possible for a case against Trump to be overwhelming if it also lacks vital evidence and key witnesses. I think his rhetoric is running into his position. Meanwhile, Cipollone's team has argued that McCarthy called the Constitution uh, the constitutional infirmity of the Democrats to impeachment charges. The president wants to contest the facts of the case. Some of that has seeped into the rhetoric of his lawyers, uh, McCarthy points out, who added that such rhetoric does not help any case to dismiss the charges outright. Well, that rhetoric, he says, also concerns moderate Republican senators like Cory Gardner of Colorado, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Susan Collins of Maine, who are up for reelection this year and who are being closely watched as the trial drags on. Well, the president is taking the position that the facts need to be contested, that whether there is a quid pro quo and whether he did anything wrong needs to be contested. That actually supports the arguments for why you should hear from witnesses who haven't been heard from yet and who may have Uh, things to say that are relevant on the different subjects. Well, now Republicans can make the argument that the House should have called those witnesses or made better effort to gain them. Well, the fact is that the rhetoric of contesting the facts is supporting the arguments of the people who say that more witnesses are necessary. So I think he does make his point. Both sides are undermining their own case. And the drama continues. Up next, we'll talk with Meredith McDaniel. In want and plenty, waking up to God's provision in a land of longing. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
My next guest in her latest book points out that we are born with dreams, and some of us have detailed plans about how to make them happen. Yet we all come to a point in life when we realize that we're not in control. A loved one gets sick, a tragedy occurs, our plans backfire. What we may not realize that even when we can't depend on our circumstances or ourselves, there is one who will always provide what we need right when we need it. With compassion and enthusiasm, my guest Meredith McDaniel invites readers to walk alongside God's people in Exodus as they wake up each morning to manna. God's provision for them in desert places. As she unfolds their story of complete dependence on their creator, you'll discover through guided journaling how God is providing for you right now, wherever you are in your own unique story. Along the way, you'll develop a comforting awareness that you are seen, known, protected, and nourished by a God in the present, in the person of Jesus. Well, Meredith McDaniel is a licensed professional counselor in private practice. She's a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She's also served on staff with Young Life and as the lead counselor with Inheritance of Hope. She and her husband, Ben, have three young children, live in a small town near Charlotte, North Carolina. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, In Want and Plenty, Waking Up to God's Provision in a Land of Longing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. In your prologue, and I'm furiously trying to uh, uh, turn the page, you write, I'm sitting here silently gazing out the window, watching the birds in my yard dancing wildly in the sunshine, uninhibited. They appear to have an understanding with our Creator that they will be given enough for today. Don't you envy that kind of certainty? Then you go on to write, I long to be like the birds who do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet I endlessly hustle and gather in an effort to satisfy my thirst and hunger. I wonder what our bodies, minds, and souls would be like if we all could live in such sweet surrender. This is such a beautiful picture of what your book is about in want and plenty, this striving for more that tends to characterize uh, how we live Uh, our lives. People feel somewhat paralyzed in their story and season of life. Talk a little bit about the theme of your book and how we can find that kind of uh, rest and reassurance that you described. Yes. Well, I think we do live in a culture where we set a lot of goals. January is a good time. You know, we're trying to do New Year's resolutions. We're trying to figure out, um, you know, how we can attain the next thing that we're longing for, the next um, goal that we want to reach. And, you know, it only takes a few weeks into January, kind of about where we are right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> to start to realize that all of our plans that we have don't always necessarily go the way we want them to go. And so I don't know about you, but I can tend to get a little frustrated. I can start to feel like a failure. I can start to feel like I'm not enough, like I don't have enough. And I start looking um, really in all the wrong places to find satisfaction um, from this world when we know as Christians and people who follow Jesus that we can search our whole lives here on earth and not necessarily find what we're looking for um, in the things that we think that we need. And so the book really does kind of start us off on this journey and maybe even a treasure hunt, if you will, to unearth and uncover um, God's provision, uh, the manna, the provision that is actually right here, that is all that we need, um, if we can just have eyes to see it. Mm. You say that we have one common story that ties us together. We want more, and we're desperately searching to find it, but we can become blind to the goodness right before us. It seems like such a mystery that uh, God's provision is present, and yet we are unable to see it, unable to find it. 
It's so true. You know, I think about my kids, even I've got three elementary kids. They're actually in the other room reading and doing their homework right now. And, you know, they come home every single day from school, basically falling apart in the car, you know, telling me what was hard about their day, what they wished had gone different, how this person interacted with them on the playground. And so it starts even when we're young and Mm. it kind of follows us throughout our entire lifetime. It just plays out in different scenarios and different circumstances. And so I think something that I have found with my counseling clients and with different people through ministry and just other friendships and family members, um, I see people kind of starting to get paralyzed and stuck in their story and they start to unravel. And sometimes that might look like anxiety or depression. Um, People can end up in addiction and all different forms of coping mechanisms that can be unhealthy. Uh, And my hope is that through the book, we would start to look back into our story, um, pay attention to how we're feeling right now. So then we could find some movement in our story um, and even start to think about how we're all part of this grander narrative um, as humans. One of the things that I appreciate about your book is that throughout the book, you take time to pause and journal what comes to mind in your own story. This is a guided journal. Explain what that means and how that helps us get unstuck, if you will. Yes. Well, sometimes I just really need to sit down and one just clear out all of the noise. You know, we have so much content coming at us every single day. And in order for me to think and really hear um, and pay attention to my body and pay attention to what God might be whispering to me, um, I really have to carve some space to do that. And something that I have found to be really helpful for me and for other people that I work with um, is this concept of guided journaling. And so throughout the entire book, not just at the end of every chapter, but also really embedded throughout each chapter, Um, I'll kind of talk about a few concepts, and then I will give the reader um, some very clear questions to delve into and to be able to process in their own life and their own story um, so that they can really get underneath the surface of the emotions um, and the different parts of uh, their life that they're dealing with right now currently that might feel unhealthy and might feel unbalanced, that needs something to shift around so that we can kind of get into a healthier cycle in life. You, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you use the book of Exodus as the guide, and one wouldn't uh, typically think, oh, yes, we'll go to Exodus to consider how God is providing for us. And yet there is so much there uh, to be to be gained. Talk a little bit about how you trace the hand of our creator throughout this 440 plus year wilderness um, that uh, we find in Exodus. Yeah, well, I really feel like the Um, the narrative of Exodus echoes throughout the entire Bible. And I joke with people, you know, going back to the Old Testament, um, we think that's going to be dry and full of death and other weird things that we do find in the Old Testament. However, I think it very much informs the gospel that we find in the New Testament. It gives kind of a richness and a fullness um, to the entire story. And so if you look at Exodus, you see a people who were... um, suffering and oppression underneath Pharaoh, um, who was causing them to work hard every single day. Um, and they needed a rescuer. They needed someone to help them be delivered and find a way out of this um, constant struggle that they were having to deal with every day. And so pretty soon Moses, which is really foreshadowing for Jesus, who comes later, um, he does help deliver Um, the people through God's power from Egypt. And so then they find themselves in the desert wandering around and they start to get entitled. They even say crazy things like, Hey, I want to actually go back into the oppression that I was a part of because 
I'm scared out here and I don't know what's coming next. And, you know, we, we didn't, wouldn't think that we would want that, um, but we actually do that every single day. Like we have an enemy that is oppressing us on a daily basis. And we start to say, well, I just want to be, um, you know, comfortable in my, in my daily job. And even if it's not exactly what I have in mind, at least I know kind of what's coming next. You know, we, we start to think um, predictability is better than full life. And then so you see the, the Israelites uh, wandering around in this desert and they start to get hungry and they start to get thirsty and they start to kind of groan and complain to God. Excuse me, and he hears them, and he starts to provide this substance called manna, which I talk about in the book. Um, and they, at first, are like, you know, saying, "What is this? What is this that you're giving us every single day?" Um, and they feel content at first, but then again, they grow entitled, hmm. and they start saying, "No, we want quail." And so we do that. We do that in our life um, when we look at our circumstances and the things that God has provided for us, and we think that we know best and that we could have better. I love the way you put it. Manna reveals the intentional love of our Creator. How we uh, appreciate that, recognize it, and consume it in that light is uh, perhaps one of the greatest challenges of walking with Him. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Meredith McDaniel. Her book is In Want and Plenty, Waking Up to God's Provision in a Land of Longing. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, where I'm continuing my conversation with Meredith McDaniel, a licensed professional counselor in private practice. She's a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, has also served on staff with Young Life, and as the lead counselor with Inheritance of Hope. She joins us to talk about her first book, In Want and Plenty, Waking Up to God's Provision in a Land of Longing. One of the things you say is that it's important to look back before moving forward, but digging up the past can be a pretty brutal and unpleasant uh, process. You say it's worth it. Uh, talk to us about uh, the seven back-to-basic questions that you uh, offer in the book that helps us begin that process. Yeah, so uh, early on in the book, in the prologue of the introduction, I start to share just um, seven different back-to-basic questions, and the, the gist of those is that we are looking back at our early childhood, our middle school years, high school, college years. And a lot of us like to just kind of overlook those awkward times um, and like to tend to forget about regrets that we might have or um, maybe even big losses or disappointments that might have happened. And in, in reality, and this is, you know, from my counseling perspective, um, a lot of those storylines and experiences that we have had early in childhood um, research has showed does tend to influence greatly our um, patterns and the ways we operate in the world, even the way that we see the world. And um, a byproduct of that is the way it impacts our relationships and not just um, with others, but also with God. And so if we want to uncover those unhealthy patterns and the um, the kind of negative worldview that we might have that could have started years and years ago. We do need to take the time to delve deeper into our story and into our past. And it might get messier at first, um, but I would argue and suggest that it is worth it because where we um, can go back, we can start to rewrite our story and the narratives that we are kind of defaulting out of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As mentioned earlier, the Exodus story is the unifying thread in, in Want and Plenty. 
Talk about how the manna that we know from the Bible, how its meaning and relevance for God's people today can help us to finally recognize what is true all around us, whether or not we are aware. Yeah, well, I think the thing about manna is that it was something that God gave his people every single day. So, you know, we're more familiar with the phrase um, that God gives us our daily bread. You know, Mm -hmm. even in the Lord's Prayer, we ask for that. Um, But really, as, as Americans especially, we really want all of it. And we want all of it right now. We don't want to, one, have to wait for anything. And we want instant gratification. Um, And two, we want to, I mean, my tendency, and I say this in the book, is to want to hoard it, you know? So I would have definitely been one of those people that was out in the desert kind of, ah, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have enough for tomorrow. So I'm just going to tuck some away right here and I'm going to save it for later. When in reality, um, God is saying, can you trust me? You know, can you believe that I have the aerial view, that I can see further ahead into your story that even you can, and even beyond your story, um, you know, if you look at Exodus and you look at the big gospel narrative, you start to see God's hand. You know, he, he knew what was coming next for them. They felt like they were wandering around the desert when actually God was um, in his perfect time guiding them to exactly where they needed to be. And even when they got to the Red Sea and it felt like, you know, oh my goodness, one more wave, if one more wave hits me um, and I can't actually make it through this sea and I'm, I feel like I'm going to drown, um, is God actually going to meet me here? And he does time and time again, not just in Exodus, but throughout the entire Bible, we see him meeting different characters, different people um, of all different backgrounds and all different, um, you know, socioeconomic status, um, him meeting them exactly where they are and giving them exactly what they need. And I think for us, um, we can, if we can start to trust that, our entire beings, our entire bodies um, will relax and we will find peace in a way um, that we might not already be experiencing here on earth. Mm. You make the point that the Israelites found their voice in desperation um, and that crying mm. out um, matters to God. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I've been in a great conversation with some other authors and therapists lately, and I think we're all starting to come to terms with the fact that um, churches and Christian communities don't necessarily know. We're getting better at it, and I'm very encouraged, but we don't necessarily know what it looks like to hold lament and sorrow and struggle um, when also being hopeful um, in in Christ. And so we've really got to face um, the reality that we live in a broken world and we are broken people with broken bodies, um, not just physically, but also mental health wise. And we've got to learn um, that God allows us to call out to him for a reason. He enters right into our suffering. I mean, if you look at uh, Lamentations or the Psalms, um, that's all you hear is, is people struggling and God meeting them in their pain and in their sorrow. And joy and peace and hope springs out of that because God says, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to redeem everything in your story. I'm not going to just leave you here and let you stay stuck. And I think that's the greatest hope that we can find um, from Exodus and from the Bible in general. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we struggle with is uh, asking the question, what's wrong with me? That negative view of ourselves, believing perhaps that that's where all of our struggles come from. Can you um, share your thoughts uh, about um, how we can become more positive or how we can reframe that question or at least recognize what's true of, of ourselves in Christ? 
Yeah, well, early on in the book, I actually rewind us and take us all the way back to Genesis. And, you know, the truth is, if we had been in the garden, just like Adam and Eve, and I'll speak for myself here, but I know that I would have made the same choice. Yeah, I would have believed the enemy, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I would have believed the enemy that I, um, you know, I knew better and I needed something from that tree of knowledge. I needed to know all the things and not trust God with everything. And so that's when it all entered the world. And it's a human condition. It's not like I am more flawed than you. Um, We all have this condition of sin and God sees it and he loves us. And he, he sent Jesus to mend it and to bridge us back to him. And so that we could have eternal life, but not just eternal life, but have full life here on earth. Um, as much as we possibly can in this broken world. And so um, a couple of really great resources I'd love to share is um, Kurt Thompson's book, The Soul of Shame, and then also Dan Allender's book, uh, To Be Told. They both help us not to get stuck in guilt or shame, but to help us to move and heal out of that space when we can get a real clear picture um, of our fallenness and our sinful nature, but God's love and redemption that counters all of that. We talked earlier about uh, journaling, um, but you uh, point out in the book that it's important to journal um, not only in reviewing our past, but also in rewriting our our storyline. Explain what you mean by that, um, because it might seem like we're speculating, but there's a value to looking ahead. Yeah, well, I was talking to my husband about this earlier today. You know, we had a little bit of an argument and he said, well, is that the story you're going to tell yourself today? (laughs) And, you know, as the counselor, I was like, wow, you're taking my words and turning them back to me. But I needed to hear that because um, I could just say, you know, this is where we are. This is how we are. This is how we're going to stay. Or um, I and I can do this through journaling, but I can also just do it in conversation. Um, we can kind of, you know, shift our perspective and say, man, this is how we've maybe always interacted. And these are my tendencies and these are my patterns that I've uncovered through journaling and through talking to the Lord, maybe talking to a counselor, a spiritual director, pastor. Um, and I'm just not going to continue to walk in that direction. You know, I'm going to with God, kind of co-author and rewrite my story um, so that I can experience um, more full relationships in healthier ways. Um, you um, offer three things that uh, that we can do to become more in tune with, uh, with God now. As our listeners don't yet have your book, but are listening, what are some things that we can do now? Three things, for example, to become more in tune with what God is providing and what he has done now. Sure. I think that first thing, and I mentioned this earlier, was just slowing down and kind of clearing out the noise Mm -hmm. and the clutter from our life and paying attention to our body and our condition of our soul. Um, I think the second thing is having community. You know, it talks about how the Israelites came out into the desert um, and when they were delivered, but they came tribe by tribe. So they might have been scared and they might not have known what was coming, but they were looking side to side and they had people right there with them that were in the same boat as they were. Their circumstances might have looked slightly different, their personalities slightly different. However, they both were um, entering into a wilderness that, that was um you know, they were uncertain about. So we need our people. We need to lean into the resources we have around us. I also have some great resources at the end of the book for people that want to go deeper into all of this. Um, And then I think the third thing is we just need um, connection with God. You know, we need to remember our identity and who we were made to be. Um, And I think that's where our healing is really going to come when we um, start living out 
who we were really made to be versus these false narratives that we've been kind of defaulting into for a long time. Absolutely. Well, once again, the title of the book, In Want and Plenty, Waking Up to God's Provision in a Land of Longing. The book is published by Ravel. And Meredith McDaniel, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Have a good afternoon. You too. You too. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up. Then we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. By the way, portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. James Blend is our producer, Clark Hilton, engineering today's program. Well, the House managers are continuing to speak from the Senate floor. Last night, they didn't finish up. It wasn't just the House managers, but they were determining the uh, rules of the road, if you will. Uh, They didn't finish up until well after midnight. Uh, Today, the uh, House managers, uh, these are members of the House of Representatives chosen to make the case that was made in the House to the Senate, presided over by the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, in order to make their case. That will be followed by the president's defense team doing the same. Each has been given 24 hours. That can span two to three days. I don't know how long they'll, if they'll take the full 12 hours uh, today and a full 12 hours tomorrow, or if they'll need that much time. But 24 hours has been allotted, both the prosecution and the defense. And then that's followed by an opportunity by members of the U.S. Senate to ask their questions. Now, when I say ask their questions, this is not an exchange in which a senator stands behind a podium and says, this is what my thoughts are, which generally in Congress ends up being more of a speech than a question. They submit their questions, which presumably are actual questions to the chief justice who is presiding over this trial. And he presents the questions to whomever they have been posed. So that process will occur after both sides, the prosecution and the defense, have had the opportunity to make their case or answer the case uh, in that period among the uh, uh, the senators uh, to uh, pose their questions. Then uh, at that point, they'll determine whether or not Uh, issuing subpoenas, uh, requesting additional guests and so on is appropriate based on what they now know from both sides of the argument. So right now, the House managers are continuing to make their case before the U.S. Senate, and that's supposed to be their audience. It's rather interesting watching the senators kind of squirm in their seats, listening to this very long and arduous explanation of what uh, was already essentially said, although in not quite the same concise way during the House impeachment trial. But nonetheless, they are required to be there. They can only have either water or milk at their desks. I guess one of the uh, senators has a candy table, and that's rather popular, but they are required to be there. That means that those members of the Senate who are uh, seeking the, the Democrat Party nomination are not permitted to campaign. They must be in chambers for this whole process. So it uh, it is long and arduous. How long and how arduous it will ultimately be is will be determined by what happens next. And we'll continue to follow as this uh, whole thing unfolds. Meanwhile, the attorneys general of 21 states have come forward with a blistering rebuke of the impeachment of the president, asserting that it establishes a dangerous historical precedent. That's quote. The Republican attorneys general in a letter submitted to the Senate Wednesday morning Uh, urged the chamber conducting the trial to reject the impeachment articles altogether. If not expressly repudiated by the Senate, the theories animating both articles will set a precedent that is entirely contrary to the framers' design and ruinous to the most important governmental structure 
structure protections contained in our Constitution, the separation of powers, they wrote. Well, the letter accuses House Democrats of impeaching Trump as a politically motivated response to the 2016 election and warned that it poses a threat to the 2020 election as well. Even an unsuccessful effort to impeach the president undermines the integrity of the 2020 presidential election, they write, because it weaponizes a process that should only be initiated in exceedingly rare circumstances and should never be used for partisan purposes, the letter continued. Well, the attorneys general proceeded uh, to pick apart the impeachment articles themselves. The abuse of power article they claimed is based upon a constitutionally flawed theory that is infinitely expansive and subjective because it relies on the motivation of the the president had for exercising uh, conceitedly lawful constitutional authority. Emphasis is uh, in the original that Democrats deemed to corrupt. Uh, it cannot be a legitimate basis to impeach a president for acting in a legal manner that may also be politically ad, ad, um, advantageous. They continued, such a standard would be cause for impeachment of virtually every president, past, present, and future. Well, the attorneys general claim that the second article of impeachment, obstruction of Congress, is equally flawed, arguing that the House's theory means that a president can be impeached for invoking executive privilege. Doing so would render the privilege meaningless, they said, because it would place the uh, privilege under unilateral control of the House. Rather than impeach Trump for using privilege to block witnesses from testifying before the House impeachment inquiry, they should have gone to court to challenge the president and enforce subpoenas, they said. The precedent set by this impeachment, they warned, will erode the separation of powers shared by the executive and legislative branches by subjugating future presidents to the whims of the majority opposition party in the House of Representatives. Well, the letter comes as the trial moves into full swing. Opening arguments were yesterday or were um, Today, following a heated floor session yesterday uh, with regard to the rules governing proceedings a day earlier. It's embarrassing. House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler said quickly responded to by the um, uh, by the opposition, the president's defense. Well, the GOP letter was signed by the attorneys general from Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia. By the way, you can read that letter in its entirety. Online. While the Senate was wrangling over rules for its impeachment trial, President Trump was in Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum, where he gave one of the best speeches of his presidency. Uh, President Trump was there to tout the great American comeback and to encourage world leaders to follow his lead and reject the doom and gloom prognostications of the globalists and their call for socialism. This is not a time for pessimism, he declared. This is a time for optimism. The president blasted the climate alarmists for their fear mongering and destructive agenda. Fear and doubt is not a good thought process because this is a time of tremendous hope and joy and optimism and action. But to embrace the possibilities of tomorrow, we must reject the perennial prophets of doom and their predictions of the apocalypse. They are the heirs of yesterday's foolish fortune tellers, he said. They predicted an overpopulation crisis in the 60s, mass starvation in the 70s, and an end of oil in the 90s. These alarmists always demand the same thing, absolute power to dominate, transform, and control every aspect of our lives. He pointed asserted we will never
never let radical socialists destroy our economy, wreck our country, or eradicate our liberty. America will always be the proud, strong, and unyielding bastion of freedom. In highlighting the nation's massive economic turnaround over the past three years of his presidency, he pointed to the driving force that made it possible, the American worker unshackled from a burdensome government bureaucracy. America's newfound prosperity is undeniable, unprecedented, and unmatched anywhere in the world. America achieved this stunning turnaround not by making minor changes to a handful of policies, but by adopting a whole new approach centered entirely on the well-being of the American worker. The president highlighted the reason behind his America First agenda, saying every decision we make on taxes, trade, regulation, energy, immigration, education and more is focused on improving the lives of everyday Americans. Only when governments put their own citizens first will people be fully invested in their national future. He encouraged other nations to follow our example and liberate their citizens from the crushing weight of bureaucracy. But he noted America First does not mean America alone. When the United States grows, so does the world. American prosperity has created countless jobs all around the globe, and the drive for excellence, creativity, and innovation in the U.S. has led to important discoveries that help people everywhere live more prosperous and far healthier lives. Overall, his speech was positive and full of hope for the future, despite the looming impeachment trial he's facing here at home. He concluded his message by thanking all the hardworking men and women who do their duty each and every day, making this a better world for everyone. And he proposed, together, let us send our love and gratitude to them because they really make our countries run. They make our countries great. Again, the president speaking in Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court appeared closely split during oral arguments today in a case with potentially major implications for the school choice movement. As the justices, including Chief Justice John Roberts, who presides over the president's uh, impeachment trial the previous night until 2 a.m., sparred with lawyers and each other. Well, the case, Montana Department of Revenue versus Espinoza centers around a tax credit scholarship program passed in May of 2015 that gave Montanans up to $150 credit for donating to private scholarship organizations, helping students pay for their choice of private schools. Well, the state's revenue department made a rule banning those tax credit scholarships from going to religious schools before the state Supreme Court later struck down the entire law. I feel that we're being excluded simply because we are people of religious background or because our children want to go to a religious school. Kendra Espinoza, a mother who sends her children to a religious school and is the lead plaintiff in the case, said after the arguments, we're here to stand up for our rights as people of faith to have the same opportunities that a secular school child would have. Well, Montana's program is similar to many across the U.S. and other states have proposed tax credit scholarship programs but not pass them due to confusion about their legality. In this case, the Montana Department of Revenue said providing tax credits for donations that later help pay tuition at private schools amounts to indirect funding of religious education by the state in violation of the non-aid clause, also known as the Blaine Amendment. If the justices were to reverse Montana's decision, it could open the door to more scholarships and voucher programs across the U.S., 
following the high court's recent trend of expanding religious liberty. Well, at the Supreme Court Wednesday, Espinoza's lawyer, a team from the Libertarian Institute for Justice, argued the program was voided simply because it afforded a religious option and the U.S. Supreme Court should restore what the Montana legislature passed. Well, that point caused some disagreement among the justices, as Justice Elena Kagan argued the result of the Montana Supreme Court ruling that neither secular nor religious private schools were receiving government money meant there was no need for the Supreme Court to step in at all. Justice Samuel Alito disagreed, citing case law that a decision made with unconstitutional motives was necessarily invalid, even if the the, uh, concrete action taken by the government were not necessarily illegal. Well, as a result of this challenge, what has happened is that neither the parents who want to send their children to religious schools nor the parents who want to send their children to secular schools get what they would like to get, Kagan said, challenging Espinoza's lawyer. So they're both being treated the same way. Alito later responded, no, isn't the crucial question why the state court did what it did. If it did what it did for an unconstitutionally discriminatory reason, then there's a problem. Justice Brett Kavanaugh pressed the Montana uh, lawyer, Adam Unowski, on the distinction between religious and secular schools versus schools representing different religions. Suppose the state said we're going to allow the scholarship fund to be used for secular schools or Protestant schools, but not for Jewish schools or Catholic schools. Unconstitutional? Kavanaugh asked. After Unowski replied that it would be Kavanaugh went on, so what's different uh, What's different when you say the scholarship funds can be used for secular schools but not for Protestant, Jewish, Catholic, or other religious schools because of their religious status? Well, government money going to religious schools doesn't necessarily violate the First Amendment, but appeals courts are split on whether excluding such schools from programs like Montana's violate religious freedom, which is likely part of the reason why the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Well, the case has drawn tremendous interest with nearly 50 different friend of the court briefs filed on its merits advocating for either Espinoza or the Montana uh, Department stance. Groups weighing in include the Libertarian Cato Institute, large groups of states on both sides of the issue, former Wisconsin governor and school choice advocate Scott Walker, several members of Congress, the Trump administration, the Freedom From Religion Foundation and many more. One of the groups that submitted a brief was Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. In a press release Wednesday, the group's CEO cautioned that forcing taxpayers to fund religious education violates the religious freedom of the taxpayer. Now, keep in mind, this was voluntary. May Nan Ellingson, a delegate at the 1972 Montana Constitutional Convention, which included the no-aid clause, was at the Supreme Court Wednesday and pushed back on the idea that the provision was discriminatory. It certainly wasn't aimed at any particular religion, she said. On the contrary, there were ministers and people that were delegates of all religious faiths, all of whom supported this no-aid provision for a whole host of reasons, as were mentioned in the court today. Well, U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, a school choice proponent, was in the courtroom as well. So was Espinoza, along with her children. Blaine Amendments, uh, the Blaine Amendment, originated, in its plural, amendments originated in the 1870s when, as Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in a 2000 case, it was an open secret that sectarian was code for Catholic. 37 states have Blaine Amendments today, but uh, Institute for Justice Senior Attorney Michael Bendis calls them uh, vestiges of 19th century anti-Catholic bigotry. Well, Espinoza's lawyer also cited Trinity Lutheran, a Supreme Court case from 2017, that ruled Missouri couldn't deny a church a grant to resurface its playground simply because it was a church. 
Again, the case, arguments heard earlier today, a decision probably not until uh, late spring or summer. We'll keep an eye open for what happens next. Well, President Trump said in a Wall Street Journal interview on Tuesday that the White House plans to unveil a new tax cut proposal in 90 days. We're talking a fairly substantial middle class tax cut that'll be subject to taking back the House and obviously keeping the Senate and keeping the White House, the president said. He declined to provide specifics about the plan. The White House has been saying for several months that they plan to release a proposal for a middle class tax cut as Trump runs for reelection. The exact contents of the package are still being discussed. White House National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow gave a different timetable than Trump in a CNBC interview last week, saying uh, that the proposal could be unveiled perhaps sometime later in the summer. A 90-day timetable, tra- uh, rather, as Trump indicated Tuesday, would have the proposal released around the time of the April 15th tax filing due date. And while a new Trump tax proposal would be highly unlikely to pass the Democratic-controlled House, the proposal could be something that Trump talks about on the campaign trail this year as he touts the, ec- the economy and his 2017 tax cut law. But Democrats think they have the advantage on taxes in 2020, pointing to the fact that polling has not found widespread support for Trump's 2017 law, but has found support for Democratic proposals to raise taxes on the rich. In October of 2018, the president floated unveiling a middle class tax cut ahead of the uh, midterm elections the following month, but did not uh, end up doing so. Well, the Trump administration is planning to introduce new visa restrictions aimed at restricting birth uh, tourism, whereby women travel to the United States to give birth so that their children automatically become U.S. citizens. They're impregnated elsewhere, come to the U.S. to deliver. The new rules would make it harder for pregnant women to travel on a tourist visa. In one draft of the regulations, pregnant women would have to convince a consular officer that they have another legitimate reason to come to the United States before obtaining the visa. The State Department planned to publicize the rules on Thursday, according to two officials. Um, The practice of so-called birth tourism is a lucrative industry in the United States and abroad. A spokesperson said the rules are intended to address the national security and law enforcement risks associated with birth tourism, including criminal activity associated with the birth tourism industry. It remains unclear how officers would determine whether a woman is pregnant to begin with and whether a woman could get turned away by border officers who suspect she could, well, just be looking uh, just by looking at her, consular officers right now aren't told to, to ask during visa interviews whether or not a woman is pregnant or intends to become so. But they would have to determine whether a visa applicant would be coming to the United States primarily to give birth. We just learned that additional U.S. troops have been flown out of Iraq for closer evaluation of potential concussion injuries from the Iranian missile attack of January 8th. U.S. defense officials said uh, Tuesday the exact numbers of troops flown to Germany was not immediately clear, but officials said it was a small number. The officials spoke on condition of anonymity. Last week, 11 U.S. soldier uh, service members were flown from Iraq to U.S. medical facilities in Germany and Kuwait for further evaluation of concussion-like symptoms. Navy Captain Bill Urban, spokesperson for the U.S. Central Command that oversees military operations across the Middle East, confirmed the additional evacuations, but did not say how many that evacuation would include. As medical treatment and evaluations in theater continue, additional service members have been identified as having potential injuries, Urban said. Uh, Yesterday morning, these service members, out of an abundance of caution, have been transported to Landstuhl, Germany, for further evaluations and necessary treatment 
on an outpatient basis, given the nature of injuries already noted. It is possible additional injuries may be identified in the future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My microphone is falling apart, Clark. Don't worry, I'll put it back together. Well, during the upcoming February legislative session, and yes, there is a February legislative session. It's the short version. State lawmakers are going to be voting on a massive statewide carbon tax, also known as carbon cap and trade. Well, the Oregonian reports that this $700 million tax will spike both gasoline prices and utility prices. A 72 cent uh, gas tax increase, a 13 percent utility rate increase. The $700 million will be going into an undefined government slush fund and managed by unelected bureaucrats. The Oregonian is also calling this tax uh, scheme one of the most complex and sprawling pieces of legislation ever to come before Oregon lawmakers. Hmm. Well, um, the carbon tax is a massive, complex, sprawling, costly and painful um, plan. Uh, exactly why the politician shows the super short February legislative session to push this thing through because uh, they know the February session is only 35 days, has fewer public hearings, fewer opportunities for the public to participate in the process. So be ready, be ready rather. Uh, this is why Taxpayer Association of Oregon is running billboards, lawn signs, cartoons, mailings, social media articles exposing the tax so people are aware and can uh, evaluate and decide for themselves. Few things they're encouraging you to do: attend the state capitol rally on Thursday, February sixth. Spread the word online. Write a brief paragraph on how a big seventy-two cent per gallon and thirteen percent utility increase will impact your family, lobby lawmakers, and so on. Uh, the full details of the tax are not yet out. Uh, will likely change as the big vote nears because we know so little. Uh, is just one more reason why um, pushing this thing through in a short period of time with limited public input is undemocratic and, well, the wrong thing to do. In any event, gird your loins, it is coming. Cap and trade 2.0. Well, Oregon officials are once again advising people to get a passport in, uh, instead of waiting to get the new form of ID that will be required to fly domestically later this year. Starting the 1st of October 2020, That's this year, of course. TSA agents will stop accepting standard driver's licenses as a form of identification to board flights. The TSA says travelers will be required to present a real ID compliant license in order to travel domestically. Current Oregon driver's licenses are not real ID compliant. But in Oregon, there's a huge hang up and you can't get real ID yet. They won't be available until the 6th of June, which happens to be my birthday. Gifts not required. Just three months before the new rule takes effect. Now, last fall, transportation leaders made a plea to Oregonians, get or renew your passport. They're worried about huge crowds rushing to get the real ID in July. They're hopeful that folks can get a real ID once the rush dies down. But in a newspaper sent on Wednesday from Secretary of State Bev Clarno, the state leader says people should get a passport if they don't already have one. Well, according to Clarno, to supply nearly one million real ID compliant licenses to Oregonians, these are driver's licenses, Uh, who are expected to want one, the DMV would have to issue 32 licenses a second every business day from July to October. Now, I don't know how how long it's been since you've been to the DMV, (laughs) but the likelihood 
of issuing 32 licenses a second every business day from July to October. Issuing three licenses a day from the DMV is probably more than, I don't want to be insulting, but I've been there recently probably three times in the last month and a half, and I have to kind of chuckle. Anyway, it's just not possible, Clarno says, in a more polite uh, response to the challenge. If you don't have a Real ID compliant form of identification at the airport beginning the 1st of October, agents will put you through an alternative process to verify your identity that could take an hour or more and may result in you missing your flight. So if you don't have TSA compliant or rather Real ID compliant identification, you don't have a passport and you're used to showing up at the airport two hours ahead of time, you might want to add an hour or two to that. In addition to passports, military IDs, permanent resident cards will still get you through the airport security once real ID kicks in. What's the difference between the ID you have now and the real ID, you might be asking? Well, cosmetically, the real ID will have a star in the upper right-hand corner. It means that you've... um, provided the correct documentation to confirm your identity and your citizenship, and it's a way for the government to standardize identification requirements across the country. So be be prepared. This is coming. Well, on National Sanctity of Human Life Day, that's today, the 47th anniversary of the infamous Roe v. Wade decision, Family Research Council released a new pro-life map, and it shows the strength of state laws protecting the human dignity of unborn children. These are known as fetal dignity laws, and the map tracks five different types, prohibiting the transfer of fetal tissue harvested from an unborn child during an abortion, requiring the mains, uh, remains rather of aborted babies to be buried or cremated, banning public funding for research with fetal tissue from aborted babies, prohibiting the sale of or profit from aborted baby body parts, and providing death certificates for stillborn and miscarried babies. Well, according to research conducted by the Family Research Council, 46 states have some type of fetal dignity laws on the books. However, the strength of these laws varies pretty greatly. 26 states have a law to prohibit death certificates, or rather to provide death certificates for stillborn and miscarried babies, whereas 12 states have strong laws that protect fetal tissue from being used after an abortion. Florida is the only state with all five laws. Only 13 states require that aborted fetal remains be buried or cremated. That's Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Louisiana, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Texas. The lack of a fetal remains law in Illinois is what allowed Dr. Klopfer to harbor the remains of thousands of unborn children. At the federal level, the Dignity for for Aborted Children Act, or H.R. 4934 would ensure that the remains of unborn children in all states be treated with dignity and respect. Fortunately, many states have stepped forward to enact laws which recognize the inherent dignity of the unborn by reaffirming their basic humanity. All five types of laws tracked by our by the map that uh, the Family Research Council provides are important to recognizing and protecting the dignity of unborn children. Catherine Beck Johnson, research fellow for legal and policy studies at the Family Research uh, Council, added, um, abortion is dehumanizing to both mothers and their children. State fetal dignity laws use a variety of means to promote and protect the dignity of the unborn. The need for such laws is clear, whether it's abortionists like Dr. Kermit Gosnell in Pennsylvania or Dr. Ulrich uh, Kopler in Illinois, who were caught hoarding the remains of the babies they had aborted. Or America's foremost purveyor of abortion, Planned Parenthood, who was caught on tape in 2015 selling aborted baby body parts. The abortion industry's 
horrific practices dehumanize and desensitize all of us. Uh, Connor Slimberger, legislative assistant at the FRC, says these laws are crucially important at the federal level. The Dignity for Aborted Children Act could ensure that the humanity of the unborn is recognized late far too late, uh, recognized nationwide through requirements to properly care for their remains. Well, they uh, provided at the website a map, essentially, that tells you which states provide this kind of protection. And I will say Oregon is at the very bottom of that list, and Washington did not fare much better. Well, as I've mentioned, today marks the 47th anniversary of the most tragic Supreme Court decision in American history, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. Pro-lifers around the nation celebrated Sanctity of Life Sunday this past weekend and Sanctity of Life Day today. Those decisions sparked a contentious debate between those who would deny legal protections for babies in the womb and those who rightly acknowledge that those babies constitute life as understood throughout history and affirmed in our Declaration of Independence. Tragically, that right has been denied to nearly 61 million unborn children sacrificed on the altar of the choice since 1973. And though this issue will never be resolved until the yearly number of abortions is zero, there are encouraging prospects to note as we consider the sanctity of human life. And every life saved is a victory. More Americans than ever would restrict abortion to the first trimester, while a strong majority believe it is morally wrong. But far more encouraging is the shift in the spirit of the pro-life movement. There are still peaceful marches and strong quiet vigils of prayer outside the abortion clinics, but there are also internet outreach efforts, maternity homes, medical pregnancy resource centers, and other ministries that are empowering young women to see their true range of options. More and more ministries and public figures are pointing out the absurdity of a movement centered on choice that leaves a woman no choice at all. Again, today declared Sanctity of Life Day. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today, of course, marks the 47th anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade decision that has governed the practice of abortion all across the country ever since. Tony Perkins points out in reflecting back to that original decision and to today, if you flip through newspapers from that day, January 22nd, 1973, it may surprise people to know that the Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade wasn't the biggest headline. President Lyndon Johnson had died, forcing the story about America's darkest verdict into smaller font below tributes of the great society. Looking back, the parallel is probably fitting a nation in mourning any which way it it turned. 47 years later, there's no telling how many other presidents the country has buried, how many future doctors, inventors, or artists who lost because of that day, how much music was never heard, how much, how many cures we might have found, how many teachers might have inspired children to rise above. They are the missing, the 61 million, the children who, by, who became privacy rights and choices and women's health. A half a century ago, seven men in black robes stole their dignity. But today, a nation of pro-lifers led by a fearless president on the issue is here to take it back. It doesn't matter what the courts say or what society tells us. Every person, the president declared, the unborn and the born, the poor, the downcast, the disabled, the infirm and the elderly has inherent value. Although each journey may be different, no life is without worth or inconsequential. The rights of all people must be defended. 
It's the third time Donald Trump has turned this date of American disgrace into a moment of unity for the unborn. In his proclamation for this National Sanctity of Human Life Day, he wanted the country to know that his entire administration proudly and strongly reaffirms our commitment to protect the precious gift of life at every stage, from conception to natural death. Not that most Americans needed persuading. This is, after all, a commitment that Donald Trump has taken very seriously, passing more pro-life policy, everyone agrees, than any president in U.S. history. But for as much as his, he's accomplished, it's, uh, the president is clear he still isn't satisfied. Even after listing the dozens of promises kept, from Title X funding to international human rights, he argues still there is more to be done. And as president, I will continue to fight. Well, of course, there's an impeachment hearing going on even as I speak. And whether or not he will continue as president or be reelected remains unanswered. Elsewhere, other leaders are seeing his boldness in following Trump's lead. Governor Pete Ricketts, a Republican out of Nebraska, wasted no time declaring January 22nd rather a statewide day of prayer for the unborn. He encouraged Nebraskans to pray for the end of abortion. But more than that, he explained on Washington Watch that Americans look upon this day as a reminder to help others, mothers, fathers and families in need, especially, he pointed out, those expecting a child who cannot provide for themselves. When asked about uh, about this, why he used the Roe versus Wade anniversary as a calling to help others, his answer was telling. The term pro-life, Ricketts explained, is not just a slogan and it's not just about abortion. It's an important part of what we do, but it's also remembering that we've got people in our communities who need our help. That's a pro-life message. So whether it's helping families who need food assistance, women who have been trafficked, anybody, that's what being pro-life is really about. Recognizing the dignity that's innate in each and every one of us. And we just had Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, and the most urgent, persistent question of life to him was, what are we doing for others? It's a powerful message, the pro-life ethic, because it doesn't end in the womb. It's a persistent, nagging drive to see people as people with value and needs and purpose. But that takes a compassion that not everyone has. So today, Governor Ricketts explained, we've, we're talking about changing hearts and minds, and we need God's help to be able to do that. We wanted to bring people together in that cause of praying for the end of abortion, to be able to continue to work toward making this a country that respects life again. Maybe then we'll start respecting each other again. Well, today is that 47th anniversary of Roe versus Wade and the other companion decision Doe versus Bolton. And there have been roughly 61 million abortions since that decision was made. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to welcome some folks from Cross International. And our focus is going to be on doing just that, uh, acknowledging the sanctity of life for those in Africa who are suffering. Cross International focuses on a variety of areas in, uh, uh, in and around the world. But we're going to focus on Malawi, Zambia and Uganda. There, uh, 228 million children in Africa live in extreme uh, poverty. And that's that word extreme is an important uh, word because it it describes the utter desperation that they're experiencing there. Seventy five percent of the world's poorest children live in this area. More than 40 percent of children under the age of five are suffering from chronic malnutrition. And you've heard us talk here before about how devastating that is, not just at the moment that a child is experiencing that malnutrition, but as time passes and if they survive it, uh, they are severely stunted in every way that's important. Well, the focus uh, for our Radiothon tomorrow will be thriving kids. And what does that mean? It means children who are healthy, 
who have access to clean water and nutritious food, who are disease-free, who are hopeful, who are learning, and they're loved. Their spiritual development helps them understand and know the love of Christ as they experience the love of Christ through the generosity of Cross International and its supporters. Well, none of the stories that you see on the nightly news, if in fact they're covering stories in this region of the world at all, given uh, uh, local events, uh, does enough to capture the true gravity of the issues impacting Africa. And we're going to try to paint a vivid picture so that we do have a better understanding and appreciation for the urgency of need and the opportunities that we have to address that need. Children and families are suffering at this very moment, and there is an immediate need for life-saving resources like food and clean water and, of course, Bibles as well. Lacrosse International understands that the best opportunity for kids to thrive is to help create stable families, stable communities, and lives that are built on a strong foundation of faith in Christ. So the efforts of Cross International Uh, The efforts they support address the whole child, their physical, emotional, and mental, as well as spiritual needs. So that will be our focus tomorrow on the program for our annual Cross International Radiothon. And I hope you will even now begin to prayerfully consider how you might respond uh, to the needs of these children in Malawi, Zambia, and Uganda. Now, a gift of $62 is what we're going to suggest. So what does that gift uh, provide? Well, it provides food and water, Bibles, and other life-saving resources. Cross International um, partners with churches, missionaries, and other parachurch organizations on the ground in these countries who have identified critical needs for food assistance and other life-saving resources. So they're partnering with the church and other Christian organizations to help them identify where the greatest need is. So the focus gift amount is $62. It's a one-time gift, and it provides a child with food, water, Bibles, and other life-saving resources. That will be our focus tomorrow during our Cross International Radiothon. We have two representatives from Cross International who will join me in studio and uh, looking forward to uh, taking advantage of the opportunity to respond to this significant need. So I hope you will join us. So tomorrow on the program, Cross International, on Friday, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. Uh, We haven't done that uh, since we had our Mission Connection a program yet uh, last Friday, which I thoroughly enjoyed and hope you did as well. But we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news this Friday moving forward. Once again, today is Sanctity of Life uh, Day. It is the 47th anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton decisions that legalized abortion all across the country, uh, resting from the hands of the people the uh, right to make decisions about how they were going to respond to abortion in their respective states. But that was made by the robed men of the Supreme Court in 1973 on the 22nd of January. The effort continues. Young people are more pro-life than in any previous generation, and we are hopeful. As we mentioned yesterday, there are pieces of legislation making their way before the Supreme Court that could uh, be the catalyst for making a broader revisit of Roe versus Wade. So keep that in mind. Keep praying. Keep fighting. Make yourself available to serve those who are in need. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.